It's me, Katie. It's the podcast. Welcome back. It's February, one month into the year. How you doing? How are you feeling? What's new? We have a guest today, James McRae, the author, the poet, the artist, the hilarious meme artist, the friend of mine who I talk to several times a week about music, (laughs) the friend who sent me the new Sufjan album on the day it came out, and subsequently listened to a plethora of my thoughts and feelings related to that, and someone who gets as excited as I do about the new Waxacatchee album, and the person who has given me my education on Bob Dylan and made me a playlist during the pandemic, which was a real honor and a privilege, James McRae, in addition to being my dear friend, is a brilliant writer, and he has his third book coming out this week. If you're listening to this, the week it comes out. And I was lucky enough to get to read it early. I, I'm i not even going to say more because this episode you're about to listen to is me revealing to James how much I truly loved the book and really got a a lot from it. And I, I say this in the episode, but he incorporates so many stories about excellent authors and musicians and filmmakers and artists that have influenced us and him in particular. And I learned so much and I also learned so much about my friend and about creativity and applicable skills and habits that I'm going to be thinking about for a while. So I highly suggest getting yourself a hard copy of this new book. James, if you're if you're not already familiar with him, which you you probably are, he's been on the show before. We did something I think in 2021 where we both came with our favorite albums of the year, our most listened to music of the year and 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 talked about that and and he'll come back again. I hope many times and and maybe we'll talk about music again, but this time it's a it's a real deep dive into this book that he just wrote, which I truly love so much and I I really do hope you check it out. You also may know James from his Instagram account, which is called Words Are Vibrations and he makes memes and he's hilarious and really wise and flips things on their head in a way that goes right in for me and I just, I couldn't speak more highly of him. He's also a creative strategist and he's worked with some of the top brands and startups that you know. He used to work in advertising and he's just the best and we're gonna talk for a while. So here's that conversation. At the at the beginning of the book, before the book even begins, you cite your influences and you mm. you give this beautiful list of, of influences. And as, as I was like diving in, I was like, Oh my God, how did he, because, you know, as you said, and and it's really part of the way that you view the creative process. And when you told me about the book and and the concept of it, I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And that really mirrors the way I look at 
creativity. And I made this positive feedback loop for this group I led creative underdogs and I renamed it to be called in process, but it it follows very similarly, you know, needing to create space and then gather inspiration and take in that space that's been created, your influences, essentially inspiration and experiences and live a life worth commenting on. And then you take all of that and see what sticks, throw it all at the wall, see what sticks. And then sharing is very intentionally part of that process too, because that's how you iterate and and get better. And so what I love about your book is it it's it's very aligned with that, with the yin and yang as you described. But when I read all of your influences, I was like, oh my goodness, how did he choose? Like, how did he, you obviously <laughs> couldn't, but every single person, you know, there, and mm-hmm. then there's another part in the book where you, which I loved so much, you list uh, several of your favorite albums. And I was like, how did he choose these? It must have been, it must have been so, so challenging. But I, you know, then the more I read the book, I was like, oh, these are a lot of the ones he directly cites within the, the anecdotes here. Something that you touched on in the book and what kept coming up for me as as I was reading it was that when I am in process writing something, even, you know, a newsletter or an essay or, you know, when I was writing my book, everything is, you know, copy, like everything is inspiration. And I kind of want to put everything into it. And that is usually my biggest problem, right? Like, I, so I guess my question for you then is how did you narrow it down and not continue to bring in new stories and new influences? Because I know you are someone who has so, so many. And I, the more I was thinking about that, that as a concept, I think for people listening is like actually a more general conundrum of, you know, beyond the container of just a book, but living a creative life as a whole I tend to mm. overwhelm myself and want to do everything. So I end up doing not much. So <laughs> how does that play out for you? How were you able to, in the process of writing this book and in general, be discerning about your influences? Well, there's a great quote that someone said that uh, a, a, a book is never finished. It's just, you have to give up at some point, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, in terms of cutting it down, I mean, in this case, an editor helped honestly because I did have more stories, and there were um, a lot of stories that we had to cut just be, just just for space, you know. And um, you know, I have so many little anecdotes from my favorite artists that I wanted to include, and um, the editor you know, wanted a balance between stories and more practical lessons. So some of the stories got scaled back. But really, in terms of the stories and the influences and how this book came about, I mean, in a way, I've been writing it my whole life. And that's why I said, in a way, it feels like my first book, because my entire life, I've been on the path of being an artist and a, and a creator and a poet. And I, I really made a commitment to that path at a at a young age. Um, you know, I, I was sort of I was writing poetry at the age of fourteen, and all my heroes throughout my life have always been artists. You know, the people I've looked up to, the people that have inspired me from an early age. You know, from discovering Edgar Allan Poe in my mom's bookshelf, right, and um, taking my older sister's uh, CDs and discovering 
you know, Tupac, <laughs> things like this. I've always, my, my guides in life have been artists and they have been way showers for me. And just that my own creative journey has been so, it's been so meandering, right? Like I was, uh, you know, I dropped out of college because I just wanted to go and be an artist. And I was, I just kind of traveled around the country working jobs and making art and writing poetry. And then I went to uh, art school, which was a better fit for me. And then I, I studied graphic design and I became a prof professional graphic designer. And then I became a brand strategist and I'm doing brand strategy and helping brands with um, marketing campaigns in New York City. And then in the background, I'm writing, I'm still writing poetry and I published my first book. And, and then later I start really diving into Sophia content as an art form, right? Like making memes. And I'm really obsessed with this idea of what does art look like in the age of social media? Like what is not just to share art on social media, but to make art that is native to social media and the internet, such as memes. Mm. So my whole life I've been on this journey like and 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 it's been more than just I like to make art like I've really treated this like a my own spiritual path you know like I think that creativity is a spiritual practice and it's a it's a spiritual path and 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 the art of you know making something real and and bringing it to life to me is such um that this is this is the nature of to being a human, right? Our bodies are animated by the life force of creation. We are designed to create, you know, whatever that is. So I think that accepting that as a calling and as a purpose has 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 meant so much in my life and given me direction and given me purpose. And I'm so grateful to all the guides that I had along the way. So I really wanted to, in this book to honor my guides. You know, people talk about things like like our like our ancestors like we all have these like biological ancestors and then other we also have things like spiritual lineages right there's all these different spiritual lineages in the world that people follow you become a, a torchbearer for different traditions so i'm really in love with this idea of creative lineage who are the artists that inspired you you know what who planted the seeds in your consciousness when you were young that inspired you to do what you're doing now and to honor those as guides and to you know for me i take it it's like a responsibility to the way that people inspired me i want to show up and then inspire others that's kind of how i chose the stories that i chose is the ones that really had an impact on me the ones that had like a foundational impact on me that i that I just couldn't deny. And, and I wanted to honor those creators and those artists by sharing their stories. Mm, I love that. I feel like something that's coming to me right now after having the honor of being one of the first people to read your book is I can see it being an excellent exercise for someone after reading to sit down with themselves and depending on their, their age or how much life they have in front of them and behind them find i i'm going to do this for myself like what are your greatest hits of influences mm. you know and mm. we were we were texting before this and 
I and James was like, we should teach a workshop together, which would be so fun. And I would love for us to do someday. And I texted back. I was like, we have a literal laundry basket of ideas of things we want to do with each other <laughs> someday. But you are cooking up so many incredible, important things at the moment. We got to we got to launch your your book. And most most importantly right now, but but someday. And if we do, I was thinking this just came to me when I saw your texts. What was interesting is like so many of these anecdotes that you shared, right? Or these quotes. And I feel like I could bounce right back off of you with them with mm. a different reference. Like you, you have this and, and so many of them are also so important to me. Like as soon as you got to the setup of, of Hilma F. Clint, I was mm. like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I saw that exhibit and I, kn I knew it was going to be Yeah, hers. you were in New York at the time. You saw it at the Guggenheim, right? Yes. And How that, great was that exhibit? It was incredible. And that it's so funny because like that's an example of the opposite of the point I'm trying to make of like how I have different influences and we all have different influences. But that one is like we totally share because the exact yeah. anecdote that you picked out, which is about how she prophesized her work being seen in a spherical like structure a temple that's a spherical like structure a, and she kind of drew spiral it temple yeah, a spiral yeah. temple that looks just like the guggenheim what was it 20 years after her death oh no more like i think more like 70 years or after 70 her years after her death yeah yeah and that part is like that's the that's what i always think of when i think of you know so many things from that exhibit really stuck with me but um i was so happy that that was in there and there's so much of it like that I just either hadn't heard before or knew was really important to you because you had told me about it before. And then there were little pieces like when you were talking about mistakes and perfection that I was like, oh man, like I, I, there's this line from Frances Ha where she says, I like things that look like mistakes. And I feel like you oh. know, that's kind of a, a touchstone for me that aligns with yours. And so we all have these these little bits, but, but something that you said in that section was mistakes are portals. And I just yes. found that so inspiring yes. and, and comforting. Yes, that is, yeah. You know, I'm one of, one of my biggest inspirations is jazz music. And I think jazz music is one of the most pure forms of creative expression that exists because it's it's so spontaneous and when you have a jazz band there's like five musicians and they are all spontaneously playing in harmony and it's a miracle and one of my favorite jazz artists and one of the most you know fearless creators of the 20th century is Miles Davis and he said do not fear mistakes there are none and he went on to say that you can't play a wrong note because what matters is the note that you play next. So, for example, if you're playing a, a trumpet and you play the quote wrong note, if you follow that note with a different note, what you're doing is you're wandering off into an erection. So, a mistake can actually be a portal to an unexpected solution. And for me, that's that's a great lesson for creativity, but it's also a great lesson for life because so many things happen to us in our lives that in the moment feel 
like either a mistake or a failure. And in my experience, it's those moments of failure that are often what they're doing is they're rerouting us to another direction. So I like to say it's not it's not rejection, it's redirection. Yeah. And even, you know, one thing that's not in the book that um is the fact that, you know, I used to work in advertising for like 10 years, you know, first as a graphic designer and mostly as a brand strategist. And, you know, even when I published my first two books, I was still working in advertising. And it was really reaching the point where I had no love or passion for it anymore, but I had this comfortable job. So it was easy to, 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 to keep working there. And what happened was, and how this, how this book really was born was I was let go from that job. We were acquired by a, a bigger company and the whole branding department was dissolved and I oversaw the branding department. So me and my whole team were let go. And that was a couple years ago and it was in the days after getting fired that you know I really did not want to go look for another job so what i did is i just sat there and i meditated and i and i and i asked the universe you know what what is trying to come through me like what 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 is the next step for me and and not to react based on fear and try to get another job but really to have faith in the fact that this happened for a reason and to just tune into what I was meant to do next. And it was in, in doing that, that this idea of the yin and the yang of creativity started to come through me. And I started to outline the chapters of the book, like the day or two after getting let go. So it was literally in the days following getting fired from my job that this book started to come through. So like it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gotten fired. So that's an, an example of how an, a, a mistake, a failure is actually a portal to a new unexpected destination. Mm. Okay, interrupting this episode with one of my friends to tell you about something from another one of my friends, an additional previous podcast guest. You might remember Jezebel from our episode that was called Sorry for the Late Reply. We spoke about the emotional and mental toll our inbox can have on us. Unread emails mixed in with a mountain of junk mail and everything in between perhaps a bill perhaps a nice note from someone you haven't spoken to in a while who knows it's all in there so it all feels precious and it feels like something to reply to and that we never fully can reply to all of it and some of us like myself perhaps might even avoid our inboxes entirely because the thought of opening it up is too overwhelming this is where Jezebel comes in. This is why I know Jezebel. This is how she came into my life because she helps us turn our creative, overwhelming digital spaces and boxes into anxiety-free spaces that are playful and that we actually want to spend time in. I can't believe I'm saying that, but that is truly what she does. She's transformed the inboxes of so many people, myself included. She's worked with journalists. She's worked with many, many writers. She's worked with Carolyn Palmer, founder, CEO of Cat Beauty, previous guest of this very podcast. Actually, Carolyn heard her on 
the show with me and, and reached out and, and they work together, which is so wonderful. And I understand why Carrie Lynn had such a great experience, why I did, because Jezebel has put all of this knowledge that she's accumulated by working with so many people into the way that she helps people through organizing their inboxes. And now this knowledge is all in a step-by-step inbox class that takes you through each step in a bite-sized module so you don't get overwhelmed by the process. You can take your time and you'll learn how to declutter, organize, and automate your inbox. But what I loved most about my experience of working with her is that she was able to focus on visual cues for me, like colors and symbols. And it was able to make it feel like a creative act, truly. And adding this creativity back into my inbox made it feel like a space that I actually was able to navigate and am able to navigate. So you should really see what she's able to do with these inboxes and what they look like. I never knew any of this was possible for Gmail. And I didn't know it was possible for it to look this way. So in our podcast episode, she talks about one of the main reasons why inboxes are so overwhelming. And it's because of how platforms like Gmail set you up with all of these default settings that you don't actually need. And one of the modules in her inbox class is on tweaking these default settings. It takes just about 10 minutes and you'll be able to get rid of 50% of unnecessary visual clutter. I swear just that alone will change your inbox experience. And you can actually grab this module for free by going to the link in the show notes and scrolling down to the inbox class page. And if the free module convinces you to grab the full class, which I have a feeling it might, but no pressure, you can use the code let it out and that will give you 20% off. She's generous enough to give us a code. So again, the code is let it out for 20% off. If your inbox is triggering any sort of anxiety like mine was for me, organizing it with Jezebel's class is going to completely transform the relationship you have with your inbox. So I hope you check it out. All right, back to the episode. Wow. I I love that. I I think we can all find many instances again, like, like I said, with finding your own version of your references and your creative influences, but also your experience of redirection, you know, and rejection is protection or rejection, mistakes, rejection, all of these things that in the moment feel so challenging. I, as, as you know, James, I, I was, as I was reading that bit, I was kind of daydreaming of my own, like, what is my version of that? And I was thinking about how warm it is today here in LA. And I would probably never have moved here if I hadn't broken up with this person I was dating before the pandemic. And that was so challenging for me. And, and, you know, I still have like sliding glass door moments of like, well, you know, what if, but I wouldn't have had this whole thing over here. And and I think that's just such a tremendous perspective to look at. It's a very progressing way to look at things, whether we, instead of being like, does everything happen for a reason being like, well, this is the direction we're going and now let's just keep, keep moving forward. And I think jazz speaks to that so well. And, and I want to get back to the, the mistakes and sort of how that all 
weaves together, but I want to just pick up on briefly one thing you said about just sort of in passing about writing your two books while you still had a day job. And Mm -hmm. as you know, I had a day job for six years and, and did everything I'm doing now and wrote my book much more than I'm doing now, honestly, while I was there. And we both share that. And in the book, you phrased it in a way that I really loved. And, And this comes later in a chapter where you actually outline I don't remember how many, but many ways that people can earn money as an artist. And you go into this archetype of killing the starving artist archetype and you get into that in a really beautiful way. But the way you say this is something that I share and, and really am an advocate for too. But the line was cheat on your day job. And I loved that. Can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, well, that line, cheat on your day job, is really that's what I did, you know. And um, it's just we all have passions and we all have interests, and it's not always the case where what we're most passionate about and most interested in aligns with what we find ourselves doing professionally, you know. And that happens; it's an absolute home run. Um, but that's not always the case for everyone. So the I think what often happens is that people give up on their passions because they are working a job that they don't love, but it's you know, it takes up so much of their energy. And year by li- year by year, they might spend less and less time on their on their true passions. And and again, I think that there there's so much value to to creativity outside of being a professional artist. You know, I, I'm actually, you know, I think there's a lot of imbalance in the world, and I think that we've been sold a lie in a lot of ways, and we have these people that are anointed as the best of society. Or, you know, the published authors and the professional artists and everyone else is just supposed to live their life as if it's like a factory assembly or something. And I really am a believer in the democratization of creativity. Creativity should be available for everyone. And it's not about... It doesn't have to be about making a lot of money. It doesn't have to be about being famous or being an influencer or whatever. There is a therapeutic value to creativity. Um, I like to say it's it's not about being good at creativity. It's about creativity being good for you. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's so important to have, to nurture your hobbies and your creative interests outside of your day job. And, and when you do that, who knows? Oh, like you could actually break through and 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 turn it into a career because there I think that creativity is it's more than just making art as well, right? Like you can use creativity to be an entrepreneur, right? It's it's the same kind of creative thinking that you could put into writing a book. You can apply that creativity to making money or to starting a business or to, you know, networking in different ways. So just keeping that creative spirit alive, no matter what, uh, I think it's so important. And for me, you know, writing two books while working more than full time in a you know demanding advertising job, that was for me a, a great lesson in creative endurance. Mm. Because 
if I had to like select like the two most important chapters, like like what is the essential yin and the essential yang, like it would be the yin would be cultivating your intuition, right? So you have a a portal of inspiration that you can tap into. And then the yang, it would be showing up consistently and building that creative endurance. So for me, it was so helpful to to build that creative endurance. And even though it was, you know, eventually I got burnt out by it, it did teach me to show up and, um, you know, find a way to pull that out of myself, even if I was tired. So there's value in resting and there's value in giving yourself space to rest and restore your energy. I mean, the first chapter of the book is called The Art of Doing Nothing (laughs) because I think before you can create, you have to separate yourself from the, you know, toxic influences of our society and the hustle culture and, um, you know, productivity for productivity's sake. So I think it's important to rest. It's for creatives to restore their energy. But there's also a time when you need endurance and you need to be able to show up and show up consistently. So even I have like my every morning I wake up and I'm excited to wake up because the morning is my creative time. So I show up like a ritual. Like it's my it's my sacred practice to, you know, burn my panto and play some instrumental music and to open my notebook and you know, open that channel and see what comes out. So just building that um that habit in whatever it is that you want to do is just so essential to to actualize the own in the inner artist that I think we all have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you touched on so many touch points and we both have done and do consulting with people and and teach workshops and I think the the cornerstone that I often find myself talking to people about around that piece of wanting to that you touched on there about well, I'm not in a real podcast. Well, I'll speak for myself. Well, let me speak from the eye. When I was working full time, when I had started this podcast that we're still listening, that you know you're listening to right now, <laughs> before my book, I I would always say like, oh, I'm you know I'm not a real author. I'm not a real podcaster because I make sure. my money this other way, right? And I heard Elizabeth Gilbert say on a podcast around the time her book Big Magic was coming out. And she said to Rob Bell, I didn't want to put the pressure on my art, on my writing to have to make me money. So I made money in alternative ways. She bartended, she, you know, worked at a flea market. She talks about many ways that that she supported herself. And I found that so inspiring. And it, it sort of took the, I was like, oh, okay, we're all, we all are making it work. And I think now that's much more it just felt like I was pretending and it and it didn't it it felt embarrassing almost to be like, well, what am I doing this? It's not even real. And and I had to keep getting these sort of accolades to just keep myself doing it. And and hearing her say that helped me reframe it. And then similar to your other point about doing it for you, as if no one were going to see it. But it's not even really about that because your book talks about this. And I agree that I think sharing and connecting with other people is part of the process because it allows you to iterate and connect and and grow but because 
doing it for you mm-hmm. is healthy. It feels good. And in that same series, right. when she was starting to promote that book, she spoke to Brene Brown and Brene Brown said this thing where she said, unused creativity is not benign. Mm-hmm. And I, again, it was another watershed moment for me around that time where I was like, oh, okay, not only can I support myself with a full-time job and still keep doing all of this other side business on the side and not feel like once I can leave my job, once I can leave my job in this like kind of manic, frantic place, I can just be calm and not have to put the pressure on that. That really helped. And then knowing like, oh, this feeds me. This is like helping me be a whole person. Like that was the the second thing that was helpful. And then, you know, the the third thing is just what I've realized since and and talking to other creatives through working with them one-on-one through my creative clinic and and my workshops. And I'm curious if you've encountered this too, James, is like I, because it was sort of always a means to an end, my other job, I was able to cheat on it essentially, you know, like I was able to kind of be very respectful and not bite the hand that feeds me, but I was able to give about 80% and keep 20 for my stuff. And that ratio could change on any given day, but I was able to do that. And what I find with people in more creative fields or, you know, in your case, because your work was quite creative and demanding um, and and the pace of it, like you mentioned, it really it, it gave you that endurance, which I think is really, really helpful. It's like what they say, uh, if you have a lot to do, give it to the busy person. Right. And And mm. I've experienced that alternatively, like not having a lot to do and not having, you know, in the pandemic and moving to Los Angeles, it was such a contrast to, you know, working a full-time job and being in New York that I, I was like, wow, my output is a lot less. And it's, it's sort of interesting that endurance I think is a valuable lesson, but working with other people, I've noticed that it's really challenging for them to give to be able to manage their energy and give a little bit less to their job and still have anything left over to their creative process. So like what has, have you encountered that and what advice do you have to someone who's having trouble cheating essentially on their, on their day job to do their, their art or manage the energy necessary to do so? Right. Well, you know, what's coming through is that creativity should be fun. You know, if it if it feels like extra work or pressure, that might be the wrong mindset to have. Um, I think that creativity connects us with our inner child. And I think that for me, that's, you know, creativity is the expression of the inner child, which just means the the most pure part of ourselves that hasn't been, you know, bogged down with social expectations and obligations and, you know arbitrary standards of what we should be doing you know so the the inner child creates without expectation without obligation but because they want to do it like i'm telling you get up to, to create it's something that i get excited to do it gives me energy instead of taking it away so i think it's so important to find a way to fun find a way to make it fun and it's a release it's a cathartic release um i love that quote you said from Brene brown something about unused creativity is not benign Mm -hmm. so i see creativity as a therapeutic 
purge, mm-hmm. right? So I like to I like to do a, a sauna, right? Like you sweat it out, or you know you can um, some people. You can go to Peru and drink Alaska and and vomit and purge, you know, because I think we go through life and there's all these things that we that we accumulate. You know, we have we suppress um, painful emotions or we experience traumas, and that lives in the body. And I think that creativity is a way. It's it's alchemy. It's a purge where we look within. We look within ourselves and we. We navigate the the inner world of emotion and different different pains and traumas that we might have buried inside of us. And then through the creative process, we shed light on it. And then we we release it, right? The creative expression is a release. So it's healing. So it 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 it's it restores our energy and it restores a sense of playfulness and a sense of fun. So that's that would be my advice is find a way to make it fun. Don't put pressure on yourself and like let yourself make a mistake. Let yourself um experiment. Let your let yourself wander. Like go on a journey. Well, I, I say I say that uh want, wandering leads to wondering, and wondering leads to revelation. So it's not about trying to pigeonhole your creativity into a certain format or to chase after what other people are doing or measure yourself by other people's expectations. It's about actualizing your own highest self by awakening the inner child, the inner artist, and letting your work be a purge, be uh, an authentic expression of yourself and make it fun. And that's, and then, and then you can always, you know, grow and improve and practice, but find a way to make it fun would be a way that it can give you energy instead of taking it away. Mm. I want to rename, I mean, purge is such a better name than let it out. <laughs> I should rename <laughs> no, it out this. Great. But that's, I mean, that's <laughs> it, right? Like that's why this is called that. That's why yes. it, it's like you have to get it out because then you can then it does feel good. And and that that's such a great answer. And thank you. I'm going to like have that in my brain for if that comes up again and, and working with other people and in myself of whenever it feels challenging, it's you, that's when you have to figure out a way to make it not feel that way. You know, whether it's taking on, you know, you talk about the haiku and the haiku itself is a very quick release. It's a very quick purge. It's a very quick let it out. But the the beginning of it is very active. You know, it's very much, you know, like nature. It you talk about this so beautifully in the book. It's slow. And writing it, maybe that's the phase that you're in while while you're cheating on your day job is like yeah. part of it is going to museums and and listening to albums and having conversations. Yes. Like that is that is the work. That's it. You're doing it. The- the haiku is a good example because yeah. you know for people that don't that don't know a, a haiku is like a traditional form of Japanese poetry and it's known for its brevity. So a, a haiku only has seventeen syllables in the whole poem. The first line has five syllables, the next line has seven, and then the third line has five. So it's a very 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 short concise poem. But what they're known for is that you know in 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 18th century Japan when 
the, you know, the these these uh, writers would. It's all about being in quiet contemplation, and in and in nature, and it, it 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 the poem itself might be super short, but they sit in nature and they would observe and they would quietly contemplate for hours or days, and then the poem would be a kind of a, a distillation of of their observations. So way, way, way more hours went into just being, just observing, observing, and just being silent and 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 again being receptive to to nature. And this is how the muse comes in. And then the output is the haiku, which is super short. And it didn't take long to write, but it took forever to prepare their consciousness to do it. So you're absolutely right. You know, if you're feeling you know, if, if, and for me too, you know, I think, um, before I was doing this, all this creative productivity, like writing this book, it, and I was working full time in New York City, that really was the first step for me was just like, I'm going to spend all day in Central Park and I'm just going to read some Mary Oliver. And just really connect with myself and connect with nature. And I'm not going to do anything. And if I end up writing something, great. But I'm not putting pressure on myself to create. I just need to go out and contemplate and observe, connect with myself, connect with nature, look around me, be inspired by what's happening around me. This is really the first stage. So that... If you're if you're feeling too much pressure to create, it's so helpful to step away and just just be the art of doing nothing. I, I think this also connects to another bit about the difference between force and flow and yeah. Charles Bukowski's epic epitaph. Can you talk about that? Charles Bukowski is one of my favorite poets, and um, you know he was low life in L.A. and drank a lot and was kind of an asshole. But like, I think he did his best, given his circumstances, to find the beauty in the in the struggle and to communicate that through his poetry. And I think he died in like the early '90s. But he has an epitaph on his tombstone, and it just says, "Don't try." Um, so this is what it says in the book about Charles Bukowski's epitaph. This isn't a message about apathy. It's about giving up the need for egoic control and allowing life and art to unfold with minimal force or interference. This is the difference between force and flow. While in flow, things happen without effort. Synchronicities emerge. A tree doesn't try to grow branches. A cloud doesn't try to rain. It is their nature, their dharma. Instead of forcing, sink into your nature. Set down the need to control every detail and just let it happen. Like rain, like tears. Wow. So good. Yeah, just, you know, it's, it should, for me, it's about, it's about being as natural as possible 
and not forcing it because everyone's creativity is a unique expression of them and it's it's a it's a it's a unique it's a transmission of consciousness right from one mind to another and is as clear as you can make that transition that transmission um the better in creativity so if you force something you're kind of you know micromanaging it or you're over engineering it and it's going to be a distorted transmission so i feel like the best transmission in art is just it's just clear and it's direct and you do that without forcing it's kind of like what comes out of you naturally that's why i think the most important thing you can do for any creative is to i talk about preparing the soil of your consciousness right like one way to look at creativity is it's like it's like farming right and like ends of the soil and we plant seeds and we water it we get sunlight and this is about what we're consuming you know what is the art that we're consuming what is the influences around us you know our friendships um the media that we're consuming you know the, the the people that we're surrounding ourselves with these are all nurturing the soil of our consciousness so that's so important to nurture your soil with good influences so what grows naturally is going to be a more authentic expression and um for me that's the best kind of art absolutely and you know i think when i hear that quote i also hear the path of least resistance. You know, I think anytime we force anything, whether it's, and you, you make so many connections to love and dating and romance to this process, because it's, it's, it really works <laughs> the muse, right? I mean, it's very, very connected. And anytime you try, anytime you're forcing, it's very unattractive energy and yeah, both of right. those scenarios. And we've, we've all experienced it. And I think this brings us back a little bit too with mistakes and with allowing things to unfold without clenching so tightly for control. And you speak about this so eloquently throughout the book. And I think if the more that we try so diligently, it, it blocks a lot of that flow. It blocks a lot of that artistry that can come from redirecting and can be built upon. And I, gosh, there's so many directions that, that I want to go right now to, to ask you about the book, but I, I guess I, I'd like to talk about Michael Jordan and how <laughs> you talk about criticism made him better. Can you... Can you talk about that? Because I think too, like if we're, there's something about not being so re overly rehearsed. There's also a beautiful anecdote from your book where you talk about your first ever TV interview being so, so rehearsed comparative to your second one where you were a bit flustered and it wasn't rehearsed at all. And in some ways that was better. And so I think there's a beauty in not being over prepared, but also showing up and like you're saying that endurance and being able right. to iterate. And I think athletes are such a great example of that. So can you talk about the the Michael Jordan anecdote? In sure. The book? Sure. You know, I think that there's so, there's so many different types of advice that you can give someone. And sometimes there can be contradictory advice that is 
both valid, right? That's why like I have a chapter all about not doing anything. And then I've got a chapter about showing up consistently. So those are contradictory, but there's a time and place for each, right? So it's the same with getting criticism or feedback from others, right? So on one hand, I don't think that we should be overly concerned with what other people think about us. Um, I don't think we should measure our own success based on other people's expectations and standards at all. But at the same time, you can learn from feedback. And the story with Michael Jordan is that, you know, Michael Jordan, I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan. And, you know, I he, he was one of the greatest basketball players ever. And he, even though he was already great, he was always looking for an edge, right? Like he was always looking for someone to prove wrong. So there's all these stories about him because like the basketball season is long and it's, it's hard to stay inspired, you know, in the middle of the season and when you're playing some bad team in some, you know, weird city and you go through the emotions and he was always like, he was looking for any edge. So like if, 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 if a player slighted him in any way, or like a reporter in the media said the slightest negative thing about it, he would take that to heart and he would make it his mission to prove them wrong because he, it was fuel that motivated him. So that's a great way to approach criticism is to, is to let it, is to let it motivate you to be better. Um, now that that doesn't mean you should measure yourself by other people's expectations, but that is a good tool to tap into. You know, um, I know that my, you know, you know, as a, as someone who's active on social media and posts a lot, I've got my fair share of negative feedback, and it's really hard not to take that to heart sometimes. You know, yeah, I might get like. 30 positive comments and then one negative comment. And it's so easy to fixate on that negative comment. And, you know, some negative comments are just mean. They're just like, they don't get it. They're just being mean. And I, I just try to ignore that. Or if it's toxic enough, you know, I might delete the comment or, you know, even block them if I have to. But often a negative comment, I will consider where it's coming from. And, is there something that I did that was misinterpreted, right? Did I, did I leave myself open for misinterpretation? So I, I actually try to learn from my negative feedback and, 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 and learn from it and to grow it, um, and not take it personally. So it's good not to be too caught up in what other people are saying. Um, but at the same time, that is a good place to draw motivation to to get even better. A hundred percent. And I think, again, I love what you said there about how life is full of contradictions. And so your book is full of, of gentleness and the approach of like, yes, of course, caring about what people think and making art or, or making commerce or or living in a way that you're just trying to second guess an audience is obviously not going to be great, but also having 
yourself surrounded by yes people and in an echo chamber of only, you know, nothing that is a critique also can can hurt the art and hurt you. And I we've seen examples of that. And, and I think criticism can be motivating and, and exactly like you said. And I think another example of this that is someone that that James and I um break down at from time to time in our in our personal podcast that goes yeah. back and forth is Taylor Swift. You know, I, I yes. think she's an excellent example of someone who's like Jordan, very motivated by criticism. And, you know, we see that from she didn't win the Grammy for Red. And one of the main critiques was that it was a not non-cohesive album. And mm. she made 1989 as a result of that. And yeah, I this person, Zach, who came on this podcast, who I told you about James, he calls himself the Swiftologist and and he's an incredible yeah. critic and and in Singapore. And and Zach said he recently put a video out about how he doesn't think that Midnight's deserves album of the year. And he hopes for her artistry that it that it doesn't win because comparatively to some of the other albums that she's won that award for it doesn't measure up she of course is having this iconic moment but he says and to your point like jordan it will potentially lead her to go in a different direction and be that redirection right. and 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 be motivating right yeah you know it's um failure is you learn more from failing than you do from succeeding yeah and not that not winning album of the year for the fourth time would be a failure because right. <laughs> she's, she's a, a huge success by any metric. Um, but yes, it's so good to remain humble and hungry. You know, um, it's good to, ha you know, have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder, right? Like it's good. These are motivating. And listen, if you find motivation in this, great. If you don't, Great. You know, these are all, there's all these different tools that you can tap into to fuel your art. And this might not work for everyone. Some people are not, you know, you don't have to be competitive to be an artist. You, yeah. you don't. Like art is not a competition. Art is an ex authentic expression. But if you could, if you're able to find motivation in that, great. And just having, you know, it's like, um, there's a, there's a line in a Bob Dylan song where he says, I'm helpless like a rich man's child. Mm. And I think that's such a great line because what he's implying is that if you are a rich man's child, in other words, you grow up privileged and you have money and everything you need, you're going to have less motivation to, to give a damn to really put yourself on the line and to take risks and to grow because you're comfortable. It's yeah. it's like the same thing. If I hadn't got fired from my job, that put me in a place that was so uncomfortable and it was so unknown that I had to dig deep inside of myself to pull this book out because I I needed to. It wasn't uh something I was doing for I mean it, I was doing it for fun, but I also, you know, I had to do it because I didn't have a job anymore. You know what I mean? So yeah. 
if you're you too pro. privileged and you're, and you're you're always winning and you're always you know everything's easy for you, you're not going to have that level of self examination that is required to do truly interesting work. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm not competitive at all, but I really actually surprisingly related. There's a few sports references in your book, <laughs> unrelated to 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 Michael Jordan that I really yeah. found myself enjoying. And there's one about, well, before I, there's one about football I want to talk about in a second, but just quickly, did you read Katie Crutchfield's latest Substack, James? I don't subscribe. I didn't, I didn't even know she had a Substack, but okay. I will subscribe to it now. Well, I'll send it to you after this. This might be an okay. off. This is like a friend thing. I'm just interjecting here because it happens to be about sports, the, her latest mm. Substack and how she got really into basketball a couple mm. years ago when she was on tour. And I'll just I, I, I'll put the link in the show notes. It just came out the, the week we're recording this. But I, I think you would enjoy it, James, because it's about how she really looked at this as what does an athlete need to do to be able to show up in that way and take care of themselves in that way. And it really shifted things for her. And she was not into sports at all, but she, there's this beautiful line that I like highlighted. Cause I just thought it was like, I was like, Oh, that's like exactly what I want to feel in a relationship because she talks about Kevin, Kevin Morby, her, her partner. Mm -hmm. And she says, one thing to know about Kevin is that he's an excellent storyteller, which makes sense. And not that I know him personally, but from his, his work and what I've heard that make that tracks. And she says that he was able to kind of get her to like sports because he made it a story like this person and then yes. this person. And, and my grandfather would do that, that for me. And, and yep. I think the way she was able to u use this piece of art, you know, like, I think we both look at basketball in that way. It's very artful and be able to draw something that was useful to her and her artistry of being a musician is exactly the type of thing that your book uses the anecdotes in it mm. to illustrate. It felt so aligned to me. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I think that you can, you can, when you pay attention and you're curious, you can learn from anywhere and anything. Yeah. You know, I think that life is a classroom. And one of the, I think one of the lessons in the book is, 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 is never graduate, you know, never, uh, it, it's, it goes back to the, um, the Zen idea of beginner's mind and just approaching every day and everything as a beginner. Because if you think you're an expert at anything, there are very few possibilities because you think you know the answer, but that wide eyed, curious beginner you know, it's like having an um, intern mindset where you're just here to absorb knowledge. And it's so easy as adults to turn that off. But I think that there's lessons in anything when, 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 we're, when we're open to them and, and we're paying attention. And I've certainly learned a lot from, from sports as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, this kind of sets up. You gave me. Well, I'll get. I'll use a sports um, metaphor. You gave me a assist here for the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is how. <laughs> Kind of the opposite end of that coin, which is a, about how you use football to yeah. illustrate, and particularly like specifically a, a football quarterback to illustrate yeah. the necessity of of instinct. And yes. you talk about the difference between um, 
you know, the, the beginner's mind and being a rookie or being, having the wisdom that comes with time. And yes, again, I think that's, that's like another aspect of the book that shows how there are, there are, there's a need for gentleness and, and to both things are true at the same time. Can you, can you talk about that and instinct and, and how you relate it to football? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's no greater, uh, you know, advantage to the creative process than than life experience. The, I think that the more we have to draw from, the more we can infuse that into our work. Like living a full life and experiencing every emotion. You know, um, you know how much ha- have people learned from from breakups. And and even we talk we, we you know we, one thing that we talk about a lot is like a breakup music like set songs from breakup music you know yeah. you 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 learn so much and you grow so much as painful as it is you are exploring the range of your own emotions and you and you walk away from that experience stronger and bigger and more capable and you know a, a heartbreak can be one of the most valuable things or like learning or like experiencing grief or experiencing fear. These are all valuable to the creative process. You don't have any deep emotions. You've never experienced any real challenge or loss. It's like, what are you, where are you, where, where are you writing from? You know, where are you painting from? Like, what, what, what's, what's fueling your work? I talk about instinct and, and what it is, like, I compare it to a football quarterback. Like, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like to be a quarterback in, 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 on a football team because it's all about instinct. Like, there's no time to evaluate. Like, you have people that are running at you at full speed, very big men, and they're trying to tackle you. That's terrifying. And meanwhile, you've got players running all around the field. And it's like you have a split second. You have a second, a few seconds, if you're lucky, to get off a pass. And you have to do so many micro calculations and and opportunity risk analysis all at once. And it's like, so I, I think instinct is the mind's superpower to evaluate and make a bunch of micro decisions at once. And I think you do that through experience. You know, the more the more times that you play football, the more you learn from it. Like you you you've tried this before and you know where that goes. You've tried this before, you know where that goes. It becomes muscle memory. Right? So that's why they call like if if a, if a if a, if you make like a dumb mistake, that might be called like a rookie mistake because it's something that with the with the advantage of experience you would have known better so instinct is about having a lot of data points to draw from right the more data points you have the more you can tap into uh to your instinct so it's like just absorbing information um so you have a lot to to draw from that you can just do it 
instantly without thinking about it, without analyzing it, because you're, you, you've, you've absorbed the experience of doing it again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think breakups are such a great example of that point. Like, for instance, we'll, we'll call it your rookie breakup, right? Like, I remember <laughs> the the big breakup that that I had a couple years ago when I I wrote a zine about it after essentially, or I wrote a zine about breakups, and I I wrote this in it. But someone said to me, it, "This one will be the worst it will will ever be. All the other ones won't be as bad because it's like I said, it's your rookie breakup, so you get a, you develop a bigger sample size, so then you know. I mean, it's I'm just underlining your point, I guess, about experience, but you know that it gets better because you've experienced it before, and I think is something that I'm realizing the the further I get from, you know, beginner's mind in some ways and, and into a, a different phase of, of life where I'm, I'm not like, I'm not going to be a prodigy. I'm just going to be doing things at the normal time to be doing them or on the later end, you know, and just finding the good in that, which is the wisdom and the feelings and the, you know, one of my favorite comedians says you have to live a life worth commenting on. And you're, that's a thread through your book as well. And I I heard recently, have you read much of Robert Greene? I haven't. I'm familiar with his work, but I, I can't say I've read much of it. I haven't either, but I have been listening to him from time to time on, on podcasts. And I really like what he has to say. And one thing that he was asked about, and I thought of you about this because he was asked by an interviewer, it was Rick Rubin, actually. Rick Rubin asked him, I heard that you'd like to feel angry before you sit down to write. And Robert Greene was like, well, you know, it's not exactly that emotion that I have to feel, but I have to feel something. And anger is a good motivator. Like anger, to, to your earlier point about release, right? Like we think of Alanis Morissette writing, you ought to know. Like that, it wasn't that uh -huh. she wants to feel that every day. It was like that was a release for so she could get it out of her. So she doesn't have yes. to feel that every day, you know? Yes. And I think that's what Robert Greene's saying. And I, I kind of sat with that for a while. And 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 then I realized I was like, oh, I have to be motivated. Like for me to sit down and write, like I have to... I kind of said it to myself as like, I have to be excited, but it's like, yeah, I have to feel something. I have to feel a tenderness. I have, that's why there's so many breakups. Cause that's a, such a raw, I mean, that, I didn't finish the sentence. That's, that's why there's so many breakup songs because it's a feeling that is intense and, you know, we have to get that up and, and, and out of us. So do you relate to that of like needing to feel something before you sit down to, to write? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, it's because it's it's transmutation. You're taking, you know, for in Robert Greene's case, it's anger. So he's taking that anger. I mean, what what and this is what is why why creativity really to me is a spiritual practice. What is more beautiful than using creativity to transmute your anger into art? Or to transmute your anger into, you know, in his case, you know, whatever um lessons and and, and teachings and wisdom. That is a gift and that's a service. He is, you're, you're, it's alchemy. You are transmuting um, negative emotions into art, into beauty, into wisdom. And that's such a beautiful process. It's, it's alchemy, it's virtual, it's a service. 
So for me, like I don't, I don't tend towards anger as my go-to emotion. I would say more sadness. And you know, so one thing that I do, you know, I, I I'm I'm often sad. Like in the morning, I'll I'll just kind of be, you know, not not like a deep depression, but just I that it's it's the world is a sad place to live in in a lot of ways. You know so much pain, there's so much sadness, there's so much grief, there's so much collective thing that's happening uh, at this time in the world. And I don't let myself look away and ignore it. I I really go into it to feel it. So part of my process, you know, in terms of like you know, cuz social media content, if you if you're a, a content creator, I think it's so important to show up and say things that matter and say things that are relevant, which means being tuned into the the collective mood. So for me what I try to do is I I really will t- tune into my own emotions and the the collective emotions. I think that emotion is something that we that connects us, you know, like I might have different ideas than other people, but we might, we're connected by our emotions. And I think that this, there's emotion, emotion is like the glue that binds us all together. And if I'm feeling something deeply, there's a chance that someone else out there is also feeling something deeply. So I really try to tune into my body, into my emotions to see what's trying to come through. Like what is the, what is the the message that I need in the moment, you know? And I sit with that sadness, and then like something comforting will come through, and it's comforting for it's a message that I might need for my own sadness, but because we're connected by our emotion, then it's something that someone else could well. So in my case, I'm I'm transmuting my sadness and the sadness of the world into words of comfort or inspiration just to help us all get through this mess together. Mm, yeah. It that that tapping into an all connectedness reminds me of something else I love that you speak about which is the golden thread of teachers and kundalini and you you find a way so beautifully to connect that to jazz music and John Coltrane yes. and Miles Davis and talking about you know how we learn from what we consume but i think it it connects to exactly what you're saying tuning into something can you talk about that a little bit the golden thread yeah and how you how the is that is like is that right in me connecting it to what you're waking up and tapping into that's the same source right of of influences and output yeah, so the, the the golden thread is is about you know I love this I learned this in in um, when I was studying yoga in, in in New York they would talk about this golden thread of teachers and if you, it's amazing it's so it's so simple but it's kind of amazing to think about like every yoga teacher learned from they they were they were, they were first they were a student and they learned from a teacher. And that teacher was once a student and they learned from a different teacher. And this lineage of student teacher goes back thousands of years. There's a gold thread of students and teachers and you have to be a student before you teach her. 
So this goes back to creative lineage. You're right. We all we learn our creative our create and from different sources. And we're torch carriers. So like Miles Davis was in Charlie Parker's band before he went solo. And then John Coltrane was in Miles Davis's band before he went solo. And it's like this teacher to student connection. And my favorite part about that was, which is such a treat to learn was like one of my, I think like the best rapper from the eighties, in my opinion, um, was Rakim. Rakim was, he kind of invented hip hop lyricism in a way. He was the first to really craft like intricate poetic lyrics. And I heard him say in an interview once that what he was trying to do was assimilate the the bopping around of John Coltrane's saxophone and to almost mimic that with his own vocal cadence and delivery. So that lineage, you know, of jazz from Charlie Parker to Miles Davis to John Coltrane, it that lineage jumped into hip hop music and the and and hip hop lyricism was directly influenced by John Coltrane's saxophone. So it just it's such a beautiful um tradition of like keeping this artistic spirit alive. So like for me, you know, I'm not a jazz musician, but people like Bob Dylan, Allen Ginsberg, um, further back to Walt Whitman, there's this lineage of, you know, mystic, mystic poets. Um, and, you know, I consider these to be my forefathers. And so like, I'm like, well, how, how can I apply this type of writing, this approach, this like poetic mysticism? How can I apply that to social media, to memes, right? Cause these are the art forms of our generation. Um, so it's so, it's been so useful to me to kind of know my own, you know, lineage and to, you know, continue that golden thread of 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 creative inspiration. Oh, that's so cool. That that really inspires me. I think I I have been feeling a bit uh you know, just very aware that I as a millennial, I am not the hip marketed to young generation anymore and haven't been for for a minute, but it feels like it happened overnight and I think this exercise is really useful to, to I want to use this as an exercise where like you just were able to name off your lineage. Like I want to really sit with this and kind of think about, mm-hmm. okay, what is my lineage before and ahead and behind me? And what where do I want to fit in that? I think that's a really good way to look at your role models and your, you know, mentors and mentees and, and just, you know, even if it's not actual people that, you know, but, um, yeah, I'm really gonna, I'm gonna really take that, that with me and tell me about the ego comes last because of everything in your book, James. And as you know, as you know, it's like I said, it's really hitting me hard. I think that has been probably my favorite little bit that I'm going to take with me. Can you break that down yeah so i think a lot about the ego and you know the difference between the ego and the intuition right and you know my first book was called shit your ego says (laughs) and 
you know, so I think so much of writer's block is because the ego is getting it in the way. It's interfering. The ego is kind of like the, the, the conscious analytical mind, whereas the intuition is just an open channel. And it's not really in the mind. Honestly, intuition is more like in the body and it's a felt sensation. So I try to write from the body, not the mind, right? I, I start with the body. I think that creativity is first picked up as a felt sensation. And the more I'm tuned into my, my body, then the right ideas will eventually pop into my head. So I don't try to force it. The ego is trying to force a, a solution. And, you know, I, I think it's important to not consider your, your ego to be your enemy. I think that that's kind of a, a thing in spiritual um, conversations, like transcend the ego, things like this. And I, and I kind of, I get what they're saying, but the ego is valuable. You know, I think you need an ego. Uh, you can, you can have an, an inflated ego, but you can also have an underdeveloped ego, you know, the ego is just what gives us our sense of identity and place in the world. And um, and it's 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 good to have that analytical problem-solving mindset at times. But when you're trying to like download an idea or like find inspiration, that ego analytical mind is not the right mindset to use. So what I try to do is like what I say is I I I I I give my ego a different job. So it's like, I reassure my ego that, okay, you're going to get a chance to, to look at this, to, to, to edit it, to analyze it, to, you know, to tweak it as needed. But so your job is going to come later. Your job is not to, to, um, to have that, you know, initial spark of inspiration. I think it's so important just to let that flow out of you in almost unconsciously, really to, to let your subconscious, you know, um, purge itself through that creative expression. The, that's not the role of the ego. So it's kind of like I make a deal with my ego. It's like, okay, well, this is the best way to get good ideas. So this is what we're going to do. And don't worry, ego. Like, I didn't forget about you. You'll get a chance later to be critical and to like, you know, that for me, the ego is good at editing. Like you just yeah. you scan it and you're like, oh, that's that's a little wordy. That's a little bit, you know, that be changed. So the ego can have, you know, have its way when I'm editing, but not when I'm in that initial creation phase. And then that, that kind of like lets the ego, um, it appeases the ego. So it'll kind of get out of the way, knowing that it's going to have a chance to, <laughs> you know, to really, you know, get its fingers in there, you know, later on in the editing phase. Right. Because that's the ego doing what the ego does best, which is judgment right? Which is judgment, exactly. trying to keep you safe, trying to like, and we need that. Like we need that editing and we need it to look cool because that's how it gets seen, you know, and in, in many ways. And there's another part of the book where you talk about inventing yourself. And there's this line I wrote down where you wrote, it has been said that Andy Warhol's greatest work of art was himself. And I think that that invention of yourself 
it has to be authentic and feel exciting, but that's a, another role for the ego to come in, in the marketing, in the sharing, in the editing, anytime it's right. like, this is how we need to get this scene. But I think the watershed moment I had for, for this was was similar to how how Ruben talks about the audience coming last, the ego coming last is like that. Yeah. Those two ideas are so interconnected to me because what I think you're both saying is the same universal truth, which is that if you are considering the audience, that's your ego trying to be like, trying to be um, palatable, right? And if, you're, if your ego is first, you're not going to make something from your soul and something that's different and, and authentic. And so I just like you, the, the way you phrase that, like it really unlocked something for me that, that I hadn't gotten that message before I heard it that way of like putting the ego in a different role. I, I loved that, James. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah. Tell me um, briefly, or I just, I want to, I'd love to hear about Sunflower Club. So Sunflower Club is um event that I host and it's all about what we've been talking about on this podcast, like creative transformation. And it's really based on the prem. It's based on two premises. One is that creativity should be, you know, should be democratic and available to all. It's not about putting these select few of artists on a pedestal and we idolize them while we go about our days not being creative ourselves. It's about having a platform where everyone can come and share their creative expression and we're all equals. And the other premise is that creativity is a healing modality. We actually host Sunflower Club in a big wellness center here in Austin, where they have saunas and cold plunge and <laughs> ketamine therapy, these different wellness modalities. So my premise is that creativity is also a healing modality. Um, so it's all about coming up and 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 providing a platform to people to, for people to share in, in a safe, welcoming environment. And you can read poetry, you can sing. There's been some comedy. There's been some dancing. You know, anything is uh, everything is allowed. And you know, my my really my my desire, and it's already happening, is to make Sunflower Club a, a global movement. So what I've done is actually on my website, um, jamesmccray.com, I've actually published like how to host your own. So I want to have, you know, I think that think of all of the small towns in the world. Think of, um, you know, the people that you knew back in Michigan, right? Like there's, there's so... Most people in the world, the vast majority, do not have outlets for creative expression. Like you live in LA, I live in Austin. We live in creative zones where you know it's normal to be creative because so many people around us, the the the, the community supports that. But I want to bring sunflower clubs into small towns in the Midwest. You know, um, you know, turn turn a dive bar into a a, a sunflower club event. To give people ability to express themselves creatively, um, so we've 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 seen them. There's been sunflower clubs in Florida, in Colorado, in New Zealand. Um, they're starting to sprout up all around the world. So, That's for so me, it's cool. about br bringing the healing power of creativity um, to the people where, 
who don't have it, you know, the the underprivileged in terms of creative expression, because again, it's so valuable for the just the human experience to have that creative practice. Right. Or, you know, to use Brene Brown's sort of um intense phrasing of that, it's not benign. And I I yeah. I think about my mom, right? Like she Brene Brown, I think maybe in that same interview spoke about how she considers herself a scientist. And she was like, I never thought I was creative. I would always walk around saying, you know, I don't have a creative bone in my body and I don't have time for ART. I have a J-O-B. And she said that in her very Brene Brown way. And when I heard it, I was like, oh, that's like what my mom always said. You know, she was a single mom, like trying to go to work in her HR job. Like she didn't, like that was so not on her radar. And I think there's a level of, space and openness and time, of course, that this takes, but also like a reframe when that time does open up or that space does open up at at a phase in your life. Like there are some phases in your life where you're, you know, maybe taking care of aging parents or you're a new parent or whatever it is, or you're in school that like, it's not, you don't have the space for it, but those phases don't last forever. And like, I think about, you know, my mom's a good example of this. Like her parents are both no longer with us and she doesn't have like I'm I live across the country she doesn't have any other children or a partner and like she's not going to work forever and she always wanted to play the piano so I got her piano lessons you know which I think Mm. is like I don't know if she'll do it but it's like you know just in case because it's something that like you know I, I think that we all need that that outlet that release and and I um yeah that curiosity so, oh my gosh, I I want to keep talking. I mean, I have so many more notes on your book, but luckily we'll talk again and I'll yeah. I feel like we're both like getting to a point where we should, you know, pivot into a new a new phase of of creativity, although I really do genuinely have more about this book I could talk about, but I, I guess I just would love to, you know, maybe leave people with what are you, how are you feeling, man? Like, how are you feeling? I mean, what are you excited about? The book's about to come out. Your, your life has changed and grown in so many ways over these last couple of years. And it it's continuing to, and it's been such a delight as your friend to, to witness it. But I just love to know genuinely, like, how are you? Oh, thanks again, Katie. Um, Great. Uh, let's see. The book comes out one week from today, from this, from when we're re- recording it. <laughs> Incredible. So I'm kind of in this um, a deep appreciation for the moment. Like I've, like I, I got my own co- like copies of the book for the first time like a week ago, and it's funny because I've just been like sitting in my office at night, just like reading my own book, <laughs> which. <laughs> Um, and cause, cause, you know, you, I wrote it so long ago that you forget, you almost forget what's in there. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is, I like this. I like this. Or like, or even like, oh, that I would change that, oh. you, know, so, <laughs> you know? So, um, so I'm really appreciating the moment and, and I'm appreciating, um, you know, all the, all the support that I've got to be able to put this out, you know, um, the people that's followed me on social media and, and the people, you know the 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 creative peers like yourself who j- just having that community around me is just so airing and it makes it normal to create because i'm friends with so many amazing creators um so i'm just deeply grateful for the moment and then also just like 
poising myself to you know do a bunch of podcasts and to do some book launch events and to just it up to the next level as a as a as a creator and 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 just holding space right like this was a book you know you write a book in solitude this book was written with you know me alone in a room and now it's about bringing it out into the world so turning it into events you know um not just giving the book to people but holding space for others you know at sunflower club at book events to really hold space for people to explore creativity so it's it's kind of the time where i'm leaving the the solitude of writing the book and then bringing it out into the world which again yin and yang it's all, it's 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 now the yang phase of sharing it and talking about it um and teaching it so uh it's exciting i'm grateful it's i'm also you know nervous and you know just getting myself ready for being out there and and talking about it so all the things all the all the feelings yeah it's a super different energy you know it's yeah. like you said it's the the opposite the the summer to the winter of of writing the book and and what that process is so amping yourself up for that and you know honestly i I'm so grateful for you and our friendship. And it's it's so funny, James, because you were so sweet. Yeah, I texted you yesterday frantically like, oh my God, I saw you sent the book and I haven't started it. And I really yeah. did make my way through all of it except the last chapter, which I'm I'm gonna savor after this. But I could have very easily, and you said this, we could have talked about what we talk about naturally and music and just see, just really, you know, try to see where the conversation led us and follow the mistakes, if you will. And we probably would have covered a lot of these same aspects of that come up in your book because it's so universal and relatable and connected. And I just, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to, to come on the show again. And I hope you come on many more times and, and that, all of our ideas that we send back and forth in our, I, I, it's such a brilliant part of my life walking around LA, listening to your voice texts and you humor me <laughs> when I can, you know, send you 20 minutes on like a very specific Sufjan reference. And, um, you know, you, you, my education of Bob Dylan fully from you, um, <laughs> is just really something that I cherish so much. And I, I oh. think people really get a taste of what it's like to, to be in your orbit through your work. Oh. And, and I can attest to that. So I'm, I'm just so grateful that you exist and that I get to know you and that that you made this brilliant book that I got to be one of the first people to read. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, I really appreciate our friendship and just, you know, your spirit and your enthusiasm and everything that you're doing. So thanks for having me back on. And uh, I can't wait to see you when I'm in LA next. And yeah, it's always it's always a pleasure to connect. Oh, me too. Everyone listening, get yourself a hard copy of this incredible book that we've been discussing for the last, I don't know how long, but it's dark now here. <laughs> and follow James if you don't already on on all of social media and 
And then also, you know, keep in touch with both of us because like James said, he's he's coming to LA and and we might be doing a book launch event together. So, you know, verdict's still out on that, but we'll keep you posted. And either way, he will be doing events here and I will be there um, for sure. So, you know, keep this, the day you're listening to this, you can get yourself a book. And I am so, so glad you listened. Is there anything else that, that you want to leave people with before we let out the deep breath? I mean, thanks for everyone for tuning in and, um, you know, listening to Katie's podcast in general, because I love her podcast too. And, um, and for just, it means a lot if you've listened to this episode, just to, um, share this time with you. So I just want to thank everyone for listening. Oh, thank you. Okay. Let's, let's do the last, what did you call it? Not release, but, um, purge. purge. Yeah. Instead of saying, let it out, I'll say, I'll say purge this time. Maybe I'll, that'll be my new branding (laughs) instead of let it out. It'll just be purge. (laughs) It'll look like I have it. That'd be a really good name for, um, ayahuasca. um, You should call your podcast. Yeah. Oh my God. There's actually a part of oh, this should be a voice text. I should let you go. But there, you know how I've been telling you how much I love Blonde Shell. Have you been listening to her recently? Yeah, I checked it. I checked it out. Yeah. There's this one song called, um, oh, I think it's, I'm going to send it to you after, but it's like, um, she makes like the throw up. She makes that sound in a song. Like it's a lyric. <laughs> it's oh, so yeah. funny. Yeah. I have <laughs> to send it to you. But it's it's so good. She's talking about like having a stomach ache, and then that that is a lyric like that. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. <laughs> All right. So inhale. Let it out slash purge. <laughs> oh. It really does feel better. God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Works. Um, blah, all right. blah. Blah. <laughs> Oh, I love you. Thank you for doing this. All right. Love you too, Katie. Talk to you later. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening. That was my episode with James McRae. If you're unconvinced how excellent this book is at this point, I really don't even know what to tell you, but clearly I had an intense reaction to it. If you listened to that episode, which you you did, if you're listening to me right now, you know how much I loved this book. I went and read the final chapter right after we hung up. So again, the book is called The Art of You, The Essential Guidebook for Reclaiming Your Creativity. It's full of incredible anecdotes and stories about my friends, stories about artists that we love. And it's very experiential. It's full of journaling prompts and ideas that I am going to take into my own life and see what happens, take them for a spin. And and I'm eager to hear if that is the case for you too. So let me know if you get the book. Let me know if you listened all the way to the end. And Thank you so much to James. Congrats on his book. And if we end up doing an event together in LA, which we might in March, I hope you come and we can all hang out then. So I'll keep you posted on that. In the meantime, he's at Words or Vibrations, which I'm sure you're already following him and his 
incredible, hilarious memes. In the book, he actually talks about the history of memes and, and Terrence McKenna actually spoke about them in the 70s. It's, it's very, very fascinating. So I don't know if you were even able to grasp like how cool he is from this episode. I mean, I, I hope so, but he just has this wealth of knowledge and he's someone that I turn to often. I remember, I think the thing I admire most about him is he just has this very calm energy about him and really feels like someone who is an excellent teacher and guide and, and person to learn from. And this book really conveys that. So I am so grateful that you are here listening. And if some of this content around creativity resonates with you and you would like to work with me further in that department, <laughs> I have the creative clinic and we spoke about it a little bit in here in my workshop called in process, which is a group version of my one-on-one -on -one creative clinic, creative coaching. So if you want to learn more about either of those things, I have a couple spots available in one-on-one -on -one, and then there's going to be a group coming up soon. It's going to be a little bit different than the one that we previously did in process. This one, I'll surprise you, but we have many exciting episodes coming up. I'm not even going to tell you who the guests are, but just trust me. And if you're listening right now all the way to the end, comment the raining emoji, like the cloud with the rain on my Instagram and James's Instagram and let it out's Instagram. This podcast you're listening to has an Instagram all by itself. It's let it out with three T's. I wonder who runs that. Um, anyway, so comment the rain cloud and I will talk to you very soon. This podcast is edited by the incredible Brianna Bain. Um, I was thinking about Joan Didion because there's a poem. Is it is it a Terrence McKenna or, or a Ginsburg poem? Maybe that has that phrase in it, and maybe this does the title is the title related to it? Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I don't know about the poem, but I do talk about Joan Didion in the book as like someone who taught me how to write. Really? Does that come up? Have I, did I miss that part or does that come up at after page 207? I don't remember where in the book it is, um, but, or maybe I didn't, maybe I, maybe I took that out, but, um, but I feel like some writers inspired me like in a big picture way, like, like, but Joan inspired me in a very like detail oriented way because I feel like her writing is so neat and precise. So I feel like when I'm writing often, like Joan Didion is like looking over my shoulder and I don't and I want to um <laughs> I want to please her. So I mm. try to like she the way she crafts sentences and the way she like ends paragraphs or like closes chapters. She's just a very precise writer. So I feel like I learned a lot about precision and grammar and sentence structure from her. Mm. Gosh. Okay. Well, so many bits and aspects and anecdotes of your book really, really hit me hard. I mean, I had to, I had to, let's just tell everyone what had to happen. I had to push the interview to talk to my friend about his book because I didn't want to put down reading his book. 
<laughs> so that's how you know that how how incredible it it was and is and I I didn't end up getting to the very very end I I left the last chapter for me to savor but I have copious notes and the funny part of this James and for everyone listening this is James technically it's your second appearance on this podcast because you are my mm-hmm. dear friend and you came on to talk about music which you will do another time again, many times, I hope. And we have a personal podcast that goes back and forth um, to each other. Yeah, we could talk. We could talk. We could, we could talk about music all day, <laughs> all day, <laughs> and sure. we do, and we do, and and yeah. many many minutes have been sent um, back and forth over the years. And honestly, it's a it's a joy of my life. It's a light of my life to be able to talk to you and and catch up with you and talk about life and what's going on with us through the lens of the new Sufjan album or how I cannot wait until March 22nd for the new Waxacachi album and and just knowing you're excited as excited about it as I am and it's been such a beautiful part of our friendship to be able to to connect on those things and something I really love about your book which there are so many things and and first of all congratulations <laughs> so much it's no small thing i mean this is your this is your third book right this is my third book yeah this is um my third one um and i but i feel like it's like my it's like my my real one i feel like it's so there's so much of me in there and my own journey and my own interests and my own um stories of my own creative uh my, my favorite my favorite artists that inspired me so i feel like it is uh it's my third, but it's like kind of I, I I'm I'm re- it's kind of my first in a way. Yeah, if you know, I know what, what I mean. You mean. Yeah, I do because I think and I I would feel similarly. I think if I the the book that I wrote. I mean, I think James and I met because we probably talked about this the first time you came on the show. But I always say that you were like my friend in class because we had the same publisher. And for for my one book that I've written and and we we really connected over that experience, I think. And we had, you know, just conversations about all sorts of things. And you were so kind to me and had me on your podcast. And we lived in I, I was thinking, too, that I'm always right behind you coming to the place that you live like we both started out in the midwest um and we're born there and then we both are in new york and overlapped briefly there and then we both made our way to california and overlapped briefly here and then does this mean i'm moving into austin i hope so (laughs) can you imagine the number of concerts we could go to if you lived in austin oh my goodness i mean i would just come to so many sunflower collective Yes, you would have to come re- come read some poetry. Oh my goodness! I mean, I I've like I said, copious notes. So we'll get to that more in in a moment and have you break it down. But I just wanted to say, like going back to to the book, what what I loved about it so much is that it really feels like you, James. Like it feels like I am having a conversation with you and getting it it felt to me honestly like reading your 
I, and I guess I should also explain to, to the listeners that you were so kind to send me an early copy like a week before we did this, but I didn't start reading it until yesterday. But I flew through it because it was so incredible. And it really felt like you and I were on a road trip together. And <laughs> you were telling me these stories. And that's that's what I love about you most is that, you know, you are full of these excellent anecdotes and facts and stories from your life that was in the book as well, plus a plethora of different authors and musicians and filmmakers and artists of all sorts and spiritual teachers. And mm -hmm. it makes me, it really, you know, the intersection of those two things, you know, I know we share and there can be people who are in the personal growth or self-help or spiritual world that we really love and connect with. And then there are also artists and musicians. And I think to merge those two is a real uh, soft spot in the Venn diagram for the the two of us. And it reading the book, it made me feel smarter. To, you know, it's like, wow, I'm going to have these facts in my brain and it will give people not only that, but a picture into what it's like to be your friend and to learn from you and to hear about your life through these stories that and the wisdom and knowledge that you've accumulated in your own life and from all of these artists that inspire you from Bob Dylan, from to the story of how the song Satisfaction was made and, and was a demo from the Rolling Stones. And you make that a beautiful anecdote about imperfection. You go into Allen Ginsberg and you talk about you know, as you mentioned, like so many of the greats, Kerouac, and I mean, I can go on and on and on, and and even bring in bringing in sports, even bringing in you know Michael Jordan to talk about criticism. I mean, it it is just truly incredible and so well done. I am so excited to to talk about as much as we have have time for. Um, but I guess I'd I'd love to just ask you first, like. Because I'm curious if it, uh, I haven't read the very, very end, but I'm curious if it if it overlaps with anywhere in my notes, and I'll pick that as where we should begin. But is there a part of the book that is just really feeling exciting to you right now, or was your favorite or the most fun to write? You know, so the book is really, the way it's designed is to provide the full stages of the creative process from beginning to end and to kind of engineer how creativity works and all the different stages that go into it. And the main crux of that, the main framework of the book is yin and creative yang, which is creative being and creative doing. And, you know, there's each chapter is is either a stage of yin or a stage of yang. So like the stages of yin are about being receptive to inspiration to the creative muse. Um, it's about not creating work, but really more preparing your consciousness to create work, such as absorbing creative influences by listening to music, by reading books, by watching documentaries, etc how to cultivate your own intuition you know and 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 
quiet the voice of the ego and the inner critic so you can really tune into the voice of the muse, which I believe speaks to us through our intuition, plus how to activate your imagination to conjure ideas from other dimensions. Because I really believe that there is a spiritual dimension to creativity where we are tuning into ideas you know, an idea is something that lives in another dimension and our intuition and our imagination allow us to connect with those ideas. And then the yang is about actualizing those ideas. So once we have inspiration, once we have the insight, um, we we have this um, ability to to make the unreal real through our own creative action. So creative yang is about developing your own style experimenting with technique, um, launching projects, uh, even making money from creativity and way to um, creativity for social impact. So I love all the chapters and it's really designed to help people get into their own creative alignment because we we all might be hung up at a different stage, right? Like some of us are really good at doing and we're yeah. productive and we can make, 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 make. But if we're cut off from our intuition and from the yin, that we can work as hard as we want, but our, our work is going to lack depth and meaning. Whereas if we're too in the yin, we might be in flow and have all this inspiration and ask portal of our, of our intuition open but we might fail to finish our projects and to launch them. So it's really, I, I like different chapters depending on where I am in my own creative process. And there's really, no matter where you are in your own creative journey or you might be hung up, there's some keys and codes in the book to help you get back into creative alignment and creative flow, no matter what form your art takes, whether you're an entrepreneur or a painter or a poet or just making social media content. Um, it's really about creativity um, outside of any particular discipline. Yeah. I see it as like a soothing solve. You know, you say that the book is a roadmap for the creative journey. And of course it is, but I also see it as, and I, and I think you do as well as, as cyclical and and seasonal. So so after one reads it, I can see it being something I would just keep around to open up almost anywhere and or intentionally pick a chapter where right. I'm feeling a bit blocked and and mm-hmm. and use it as a as a tune-up. And there's mm-hmm. not any absolute rules, but you help people to figure out where they're stuck and and what mm-hmm. would work to get them out of that because it's full of exercises too, which I completely forgot to mention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's full of exercises and um, also it's full of art. So yeah. I, you know, I, I'm we're both, you know, we're we're kind of um, internet, you know, part of the internet generation, right? So like we're just used to being on social media and the internet and scrolling culture so you know for me that affects me because i want to make books that have that same pop 
that you get when you scroll social media, right? Those visual hits. So I made it. It's very, uh, it's very visual. There's lots of like word art and memes and um, graphics. So there's a lot of visual. You know, I'm a visual learner, and um, so and I know so many people are. So I really wanted to make it a visually um, engaging book as well. So you can just flip through it and and get a lot of takeaways without having to dive deep into the chapters. Yeah. Are are you doing an audiobook of it, James? Uh, yeah, it's already recorded. Oh, uh, amazing. My, Do you read my, it? That was my first that was my first audiobook. Yep. I spent three days in a in a uh, recording studio here in Austin and um stretched my vocal cords to the limit. And uh that'll be out uh next week too. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So as someone who appreciates visuals, but I'm not a visual learner. I'm an auditory learner, and I know that people who listen to podcasts in general, there might be some overlap there, and people who who are listening here. I'll just say that I can see myself turning this book on, I'm going to buy the audio, and I'm really happy that I have both, that I have the visuals to be able to look at, but... I can see myself just like turning this on. I mean, I granted I have the extra layer that it's comforting because I I know James personally, but you feel like you do, <laughs> even if even if I didn't. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to add that I can see it just being like just having the audio for this is is really useful. It sounds like I'm in New York, um, but I'm not. 